Hello, welcome to If Cage Walls Could Talk, your weekly heart-to-heart on all things animals. My name is Jody Whitaker, and I am the founder and executive director of the Chicago Alliance for Animals, the Partnership to Ban Horse Carriages Worldwide, and the Center for Ethical Science. This show was created and brought to you by my all-grassroots volunteer organizations working to liberate animals from suffering and pain. I met my next guest years ago when I worked for the New England Anti-Vivisection Society, and he worked for the American Anti-Vivisection Society. So I'd like to read his bio, and then we'll get into the interview. Andrew Knight is a veterinary professor of animal welfare affiliated with the Griffith University, Australia, and the University of Winchester, UK. An experienced cat and dog veterinarian, he's also a UK, European, and American veterinary specialist in animal welfare. He has around 150 academic and 80 popular publications and an extensive series of social media videos and several websites, including www.sustainablepetfood.info. Also, he has websites on vegan companion animal diets, climate change and the livestock sector, invasive animal research, and educational animal use. His studies on vegan pet food have been globally reported. He regularly regularly works with animal welfare charities to advocate for animals and is frequently interviewed by the media. He has received over 20 awards and research grants for this work. So welcome, Andrew. Hi, Jody. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you. Wow, your uh, bio and your list of accomplishments is has just grown exponentially since you and I... Uh, used to be back in touch. Back, I, got, I don't even know when that was. <laughs> well, that's the thing you say. It's been so long that I've had time to get some stuff done. Uh, yeah. As say. Uh, so, uh, was it what year did you work for the American Anti-Vivisection Society? I think that was uh, two thousand and two. Oh, two thousand and two. So actually, I was working in Chicago then at the. Um, National Anti-Vivisection Society here in Chicago when you were there in Pennsylvania. Yes, I think so. It was yeah. a very long time ago. I recall lots of snow and other um, interesting American uh, experiences, including uh, Halloween decorations. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. Uh, well, it was great meeting you back then. And like I said, Andrew has done so much since we first met. And um, so we we're going to get into his work and... Uh, all the amazing, I mean, really amazing things you're doing. So um, I wanted to ask you first, I know that one of the first things that kind of got you into this field was Australia's campaign against the live sheep trade uh, to the Middle East in the early 1990s. Can you tell us uh, why that, you know, why you got involved and why that affected you so? Yeah, it was almost hard not to get involved if you were concerned about animal welfare. Uh, Living in Perth, Western Australia, which is in the southwest corner of the state, similar location to Los Angeles in the US, uh, and it was also the world capital of the live sheep export trade. Uh, We exported around about 5 million sheep per year, mostly to Middle Eastern countries, one of the longest sea voyages uh, on the planet, about two and a half weeks. During that time, uh, about 100 to 150,000 sheep would die at sea each year on board the ships uh, because of poor conditions on the ships. uh, And similarly, large numbers would die on arrival in the feedlots uh, before 
being slaughtered in ways that wouldn't have been legal in Australia. So it was a major animal welfare concern. The uh, ships, the trucks used to go through the city um, on their way to the docks uh, with legs and heads sticking out the side of the truck sometimes. Uh, and it was hard not to be aware of the live sheep trade. So, um, yeah, I think for anyone that was concerned about animal welfare then uh, back in Perth, that was uh, the campaign to be involved in. And that's, I became involved uh, volunteering uh, on this, this campaign full time for about a year and helped to launch the Australian campaign against live sheep trade. And that's uh, when I realised I wanted to do something like that as a career uh, and thought about what kind of um, profession I could get into that might allow me to do that uh, and have uh, more expert knowledge and uh, effectiveness than my current job, which was a pizza delivery driver <laughs> uh, and some, sometimes delivering newspapers as well. So um, I studied really hard and got into vet school and, and everything followed from there. Wow. So uh, is there still a live sheep trade from Australia to the Middle East? Yes, it's still a massive trade. Um, public's opposition has remained strong uh, since then and the government is finally moving toward actually uh, ending the live sheep trade but has not done so yet. Uh, but certainly there have been statements from people like uh, Australian Prime Ministers saying that if they'd had the opportunity again they wouldn't have chosen to uh, for Australia to get involved in the live sheep trade. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's something that definitely needs to end, as as do so many things. Uh, so you've also written a couple books, uh, including The Rootledge Handbook of Animal Welfare in this year, 2023, and The Costs and Benefits of Animal Experiments in 2011. So uh, we met through the animal experimentation, animal research angle. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your most recent book? Yes, indeed. So... When I was approached by uh, Routledge, who are a major publisher, um, to produce a textbook in animal welfare, my, my first thought was absolutely not um, because I was a very busy full-time academic and um, it would have been insane to take another major project on. About uh, half a second after that, the second <laughs> thought came, which was that this is far too good an opportunity to refuse. Um, and so... Um, I've always felt that the animal advocacy movement needed to become more knowledgeable about uh, animal welfare issues, uh, have access to good scientific information about them and have greater professionalism and skill in the way it campaigned on behalf of animals. And I thought this was an opportunity to provide uh, a lot of that. So I... I said to the publishers, look, I am interested, but I have no time to do this. Um, and they said, have you thought about recruiting a couple of co-editors? Uh, I thought that was an excellent idea. So I managed to rope in uh, Professors Clive Phillips and Paula Sparks, my colleagues who uh, became co-editors. And jointly we went and um, found 50 uh, authors around the world who, who included a lot of world experts in their particular areas to produce 36 chapters, which cover virtually every animal welfare issue and also animal law in major regions of the world. And also key related topics such as uh, education, communication, human behavioural change, animal ethics, animal welfare assessment and so on. So we not only published all of that, um, but the we also managed to uh, fundraise from some animal welfare organisations that I'm very grateful to that's uh, Compassionate Well Farming 
the Albert Schweitzer Fund and the RSPCA UK to cover the open access publication fee, meaning we're allowed to put the entire book up on the internet for free. Um, so the hardback is, is quite expensive. It's a major academic textbook, um, a leading animal te welfare textbook, but you can access all of it for free on the internet. Um, and within one year of publication, there have been more than 110,000 chapter downloads now. And oh. it's been called a new Bible for the animal advocacy movement because there isn't anything like it out there that covers all of the issues, is fully up to date, including things like uh, pandemics, uh, public health risks associated with intensive farming, uh, uh, human-animal uh, conflict, uh, the climate change and loss of biodiversity, mass extinction. Um, so there isn't anything which uh, is fully up to date, covers all of these issues. Uh, does show pretty succinctly, and each, each chapter is, is very rich but also fairly short, often with a short summary at the end of the chapter as well, very well scientifically referenced, and doesn't pay lip service to the idea so so common in animal science books that uh, killing animals is, is absolutely fine and has no uh, ethical consequences. So we provide the information but we don't um, also uh, seek to implicitly legitimise or justify things like industrialised animal killing uh, in, for various purposes. Um, so yeah, it's, it's already having an impact I think in helping the animal advocacy movement globally to be, become more expert about uh, the issues and more effective hopefully in their campaigns to protect animals. That's, that sounds wonderful. Um... So I want to get into one of the main issues you're working on, which is vegan and plant-based food for companion animals. And what made you interested in this field? As a small animal veterinarian, so uh, treating dogs and cats uh, mostly around London for nearly a decade before I was recruited into academia, um, I had been interested for a long time in the potential for uh, vegan pet food uh, because uh, of the likelihood of substantial environmental and animal welfare benefits. But I hadn't really had time to research this thoroughly until around about two to three years ago when finally I started getting really substantial external funding. At that time, I was working uh, as a full-time academic at the University of Winchester, uh, about one hour south of London. Um, and full-time academics uh, don't usually have very much time to do anything other than uh, teach and mark and uh, do administration, maybe a little bit of research. But I finally received funding from uh, non-governmental organisations to uh, be able to hire um, junior lecturers to take all that off my hands, meaning that I could focus full-time on, on this research. And so I've been exploring what are the environmental implications of uh, vegan diets for cats and dogs, uh, what are the health outcomes for animals on these diets, uh, and what are the behavioural uh, outcomes as well. And the results have been so exciting that they've been uh, game-changing for the the uh, plant-based diet movements and the I think, think for the environmental sustainability movement as well. We've published some really exciting key research results just uh, within the last couple of months. Wow. Uh, so what does the research tell us about these health, in, uh, health outcomes for cats and dogs on vegan diets? Sure. So back in 2000, I conducted the largest survey so far of pet guardians, to, um, which included more than 4,000 dog and cat guardians, uh, to find out about health outcomes on different diets uh, and about behavioural outcomes, particularly palatability, how much the animals were enjoying the different food. 
and I've followed up with a massive study on environmental sustainability. Uh, probably the environmental sustainability one is the most exciting, but you, you've asked about the health outcomes initially. So um, I'll, I'll tell you that we studied health outcomes in more than 2,500 dogs and 1,300 cats, and these are the biggest studies that have been conducted, and we've published uh, the results recently. So we found that the dogs fed uh, vegan diets, and they, of course they have to be nutritionally sound vegan diets, uh, had health outcomes as good or better than dogs fed meat. And we looked at both conventional meat and raw meat diets. And the same was true of cats. Um, so that's incredibly exciting. Uh, we've gone further and we've uh, conducted statistical regression models to control for differences in the diet groups, differences in age, sex, nutrient status, uh, things like breed size and exercise levels and, and location, whether the cats might have been going outdoors and hunting. So we've controlled for differences in those between all of the different diet groups. And after doing that, we then went further and we um, were able to calculate for an average dog or an average cat, so average age, sex, neutering status and so on, what would the risks be of various different um, uh, illnesses occurring and general indicators of illness such as medication usage. And we've, we've been able to actually calculate what the risk reductions are on a vegan diet. So this is extremely exciting. The reductions in risk of general indicators of illness, um, things like needing to use medication, needing to see the vet more frequently, um, uh, are really quite big reductions on a vegan diet. They, they tend to vary from uh, around about 4% up to about 55% uh, uh, for seven general indicators of illness. Uh, so that's very exciting. That means better welfare potentially for dogs and cats that are fed these diets providing that they are nutritionally sound and also cost savings for pet guardians who uh, are likely to need less uh, medication and less veterinary visits uh, and both of those uh, are potentially expensive so that, that's good news for everyone I think but all of this kind of pales into insignificance compared to what we found in the environmental study recently. Okay yeah I'd love to hear about that. The environmental study um, was one in which I managed to analyse a detailed report about the ingredients used in pet food. Uh, this was the first time that a large um, sector of the market had ever been studied and made available and this covered two-thirds of the US pet food market and it was published in 2020. So what I did was I um, worked out the populations of dogs and cats in the US in 2020 and studied all these ingredients being used for their pet food in detail uh, and I compared plant-based versus um, meat-based uh, pet foods and I used data about the uh, environmental impacts of all of the different ingredients and then I calculated what the benefits would be environmentally um, associated with uh, nutritionally sound vegan pet food. I it tried to extrapolate globally. Uh, I couldn't do it for 2020 because there weren't uh, accurate estimates of dog and cat populations globally. So I did it for 2018 for the global populations. And what I found was that in a wealthy nation like the US with relatively high pet uh, ownership, uh, at least 20% of all livestock animals are consumed by pets rather than people. So that means that 20% of the impacts are attributable to pets. Wow. Uh, Internationally, it's more like 9% um, are attributable to pet food, but in uh, the US, it's, it's 
20% at least. This is a conservative study, so true proportion is probably higher. Um, globally, if you were to uh, transition, um, well, I, I should say that globally, in the, in the year 2018, which I studied, there were about 78 billion uh, land vertebrate animals being farmed and killed for the food system, of which about 7 uh, billion or 9% were due to dogs and cats, so the, uh, dogs and cat food, with uh, 71 billion due to humans. I looked at greenhouse gas savings, land, water, and the number of additional people you could feed um, if all the world's dogs, cats, and people transitioned onto nutritionally sound vegan diets. And I found that if all the cats transitioned, um, you would spare more greenhouse gases than produced by the entire country of New Zealand. If all the dogs transitioned, that would be more greenhouse gases than produced by the entire country of the United Kingdom. And if all the humans transitioned onto nutritionally sound vegan diets, you would free up, you would spare more greenhouse gases gases then produced by the entire European Union. Um, there will be vast amounts of land savings. Uh, for example, if all the people in the world went vegan, uh, it would free up an amount of land larger than Russia, which is the world's biggest country, combined with India. So all of that land could become available for reforestation uh, and for rewilding and uh, increasing biodiversity. There would also be vast savings of um, fresh water. And you'd be able to save vast numbers of additional people in terms of freeing up food energy. When we feed plant energy to livestock animals, um, most of, the, uh, of that energy does not directly translate into usable products such as uh, meat, eggs and milk. Most of it actually goes to supporting bodily maintenance processes of the livestock animals. So you end up losing uh, most of that energy during the conversion into animal products. It's a very inefficient way to produce food. Mm -hmm. If we were to simply consume that plant direct energy directly in the beginning, we could save many, uh, many more people, feed many more people. And the proportions uh, exist and calculations can be done. And it, it works out that if all the world's cats transitioned onto nutritionally sound vegan diets instead of eating livestock and body parts, you could feed um, a number of people bigger than the whole population of the United Kingdom. If all the dogs transitioned, that would spare enough food energy to feed another 450 million people, which is larger than the population of the European Union. And if all the humans transitioned, you could feed uh, two-thirds of the current population of the Earth. Um, this is a very conservative study. At several points, I had to choose between a range of values and I'd always pick the most conservative value, meaning that the true benefits uh, of nutritionally sound vegan diets are probably even bigger than those that I calculated in my study. Um, and that's been evidenced by the fact that some other studies have, have indicated that if everybody went vegan, you could feed double the current population of the earth. But I calculated that you could feed another two-thirds of the existing population of the earth if all the humans went vegan. So clearly, um, this shows that uh, dog and cats do consume a substantial proportion of the livestock produced by society. Uh, and that's associated with a proportion of the land use, water use, greenhouse gases produced and so on. And if they were all to transition onto nutritionally sound vegan diets, their 
would be vast benefits, including in the uh, cutting of greenhouse gases that are produced. So we've been wrongly assuming that um, when we're focusing on the food system and the need for dietary change, that only applies to people. Clearly it doesn't. Clearly we need to be considering our dogs and cats as well and supplying them with nutritionally sound vegan diets to make sure that there are no adverse impacts on their welfare and indeed there might even be some benefits according to some of the studies um, but that should free up major environmental benefits uh, if we do that on a large scale yeah i mean these statistics and studies are very powerful and i i would have to say that i assumed pet food was sort of a byproduct of the meat industry and that the less uh the lower quality meat is going into pet food. But you're, from what you're stating, are you saying that uh, it's not just a byproduct, that it's, um, you know, a portion of the animals being slaughtered for meat is going directly to pet food? That's correct. So you could say that, look, um, you could say that uh, the proportion of livestock using pet food is just a, a part is a byproduct of producing food for humans. Conversely, you could turn that around and say that proportion of the food used for humans is a, is just a part of, of livestock being slaughtered to feed dogs and cats. Um, what's perhaps more relevant is the argument that if we don't feed those body parts to dogs and cats, they will go onto landfill and be wasted and it's beneficial recycling to feed them to dogs and cats. Um, one of the key things I found in my study was that's not true. Firstly, um, these body parts are also used via um, a wide array of other social sectors, so cosmetics, household products, industrial ingredients, quite a big range of them. If they weren't used in pet food, they would not go onto landfill and be wasted. They'd be used by other social sectors. Um, the use in pet food, that the lower quality ingredients uh, are used in pet food to drive down the price of uh, pet food, but not because it's any kind of beneficial recycling. Um, furthermore, the proportion that are used in pet food, these lower quali quality ingredients, actually um, require more average livestock animals to produce the same unit of those ingredients than they do for ingredients used uh, to feed people directly. It's less efficient to produce the proportion of the carcass that goes into pet food than it is to produce the the rest of the carcass, the proportion that goes into human food. Uh, and you can work that out by looking at the species that are used in, in the ingredients of pet food and, and uh, find data about the proportion of the carcass that goes to producing the pet food parts and the, the human uh, grade components. And when you do that, you see that it's actually not more efficient, it's less efficient. It requires more livestock animals to produce uh, those components used in pet food and it increases the overall environmental footprint. It doesn't decrease the overall environmental footprint. Um, so that's, that is a very interesting finding. It's it's been a, a misunderstanding that uh, these ingredients are byproducts that would otherwise be wasted, and that their use in pet food lowers 
the environmental footprint. Uh, none of those are true. The opposite is true for all of those points. That's uh, very interesting, and it's it's so important to note that when we talk about global warming and uh, the environmental crisis, uh, we have to look at these issues. The the huge uh, meat um, and big ag conglomerate is is directly affecting uh, all these issues, and it needs to be considered by uh, worldwide leaders. Um, so just to play devil's advocate here, people often cite taurine as an amino acid that cats need uh, in particular, um, which is not naturally available from plant sources. So what what is your answer to that? Sure. So commercial meat-based pet food is comprised of uh, meat, but also nearly 50% plant material, along with uh, minerals, min- sorry, minerals, vitamins, and other supplements, flavorants, col- colorants, preservatives, and so on. During the processing of this pet food, uh, there are chemical treatments, high temperatures and pressures applied, which actually degrade or destroy um, a lot of the nutritional content. Uh, so maybe not minerals, but more fragile nutrients such as vitamins and amino acids, which are the building blocks of protein, may become unraveled. That also applies to the naturally occurring taurine uh, in meat-based pet food. So taurine is an amino acid that uh, cats uh, need to receive in their diets, uh, whereas dogs are able to manufacture it from other compounds, but cats need to receive it in their diets. If they don't uh, get it in the diets, then they will uh, suffer visual uh, defects, uh, cardiac defects, birth defects, uh, and so on, eventually. Now, it was found, I think, back in the 1970s that a lot of cats being fed commercial meat-based pet food uh, were having these problems, and investigations were done, and it was realised that the naturally occurring taurine in meat was being degraded by the processing of the pet food, and afterwards the taurine was largely destroyed. So... To solve that, um, taurine was added back in after processing and it came from a synthetic source. It's much cheaper to uh, produce uh, taurine synthetically and add it into pet food after processing and that fixed the problem. Uh, Commercial meat-based pet food has to be supplemented with uh, taurine and also a range of other nutrients because a lot of naturally occurring nutrients are degraded and destroyed by processing. So vegan pet food is just the same as meat-based pet food, but with less of, without any of the meat uh, and more of the plant material, but also supplemented as meat-based pet foods are with taurine and a range of other nutrients as well. So it's a non-issue. I see. <laughs> That's, that too is very interesting uh, that it's already being added into commercial meat pet food. So what about, yes, indeed. What about the critics who say... Uh, it's cruel to feed carnivores vegan diets that, you know, our cats are carnivores by nature and they need meat. What, what do you say to that? Yeah, some people do say it's cruel. There have even been calls in the UK veterinary journals uh, for um, this to be recognised as being a, a criminal act and a violation of the animal welfare legislation and for people to be jailed uh, to, for doing this. Um, Jed Gillen, in his book Obligate Carnivore, um, argues that uh, some cats may actually quite enjoy ingredients which are unnatural to them. And he says, try this experiment. Skip your cat's breakfast one morning, bring him or her to the beach instead. 
driven by hunger, what natural instincts might kick in? What are the chances that your cat will splash into the water, <laughs> swim 50 or so miles out in the deep ocean, thereby engage a 1,200-pound animal because an adult tuna can be as large as a horse in an underwater battle to the death in order to fulfil the natural feline diet of fish? The idea that fish is a natural food for cats is absurd. They're descended from desert creatures and they're notoriously hydrophobic. Have you ever given your cat a bath? So he's <laughs> making the point that um, they've got the ability to enjoy the ingredients which are entirely unnatural to them, and so do dogs. Um, nevertheless, some people think that it's cruel. So people can argue amongst themselves, but even more instructive than people arguing is um, asking the animals what do they think about these different uh, pet foods. And the way that we do that is by studying their behaviour at feeding time. So um, myself and my colleagues published the largest study so far of palatability, how much pets enjoy their food at feeding time. Uh, we included more than 2,300 dogs and 1,100 cats, and we included every behavioural sign of palatability that's been described in the scientific literature. Um, and there were 10 of those uh, for dogs, things like rushing up to the food bowl quickly, wolfing down the food, guarding the food bowl, uh, abandoning the food, and so on. Uh, and there were 15 signs for cats involving lots of sniffing of food bowls, licking, uh, and other signs. We asked all these pet owners um, how likely were the animals to display these signs at feeding time. And we initially checked to see which ones varied consistently with one another and with the other previously published studies. And we're able to identify some as being positive and some as being negative indicators of palatability, how much animals are enjoying their food. Uh, secondarily, we, we looked at um, how much those positive and negative indicators varied across the different diets and the diets were meat-based and, and vegan pet foods and we found that uh, overall there was no uh, statistically significant difference once we'd done the statistics uh, as far as you could tell from detailed study of the behavior the on average dogs and cats enjoy vegan pet food just as much as meat-based pet food um, this also concurs with previous uh, much smaller studies in the field so this is a very, these are both very large scale studies and I think that pretty effectively settles the question. Individual pets are always going to have individual preferences but on average uh, dogs and cats uh, uh, enjoy vegan diets just as much as meat based diets and it's not cruel or a violation of their welfare providing the diets are nutritionally sound to, uh, to feed them on, on vegan pet food. I love that. Uh, let the animals themselves tell you what they like <laughs> and yep, like and... like you said as long as they are nutritionally sound and they have uh, any specific nutrients such as taurine for cats that uh, are in the food if the if the cats or dogs like it then that's a it's a, should be a a, a a no question about the cruelty aspect Yes, that's that's very true. Um, and in, unless we ever develop the ability to talk to dogs and cats directly, then this kind of detailed study of their behaviour at feeding time is the best that we can do. And as as you say, it doesn't seem to be cruel in any way. On top of that, um, it might actually be beneficial. There, um, one of the most recent studies in the field showed that dogs were living an average of one and a half years longer if they were fed vegan diets. And there seem to also be a range of health benefits that have come out consistently across various studies which improve their quality of life as well. 
One and a half years, by the way, is probably equivalent to about an extra decade for people at the end of our lifespans. Mm-hmm. Um, so living an extra decade and also having better quality of life. Uh, so the, the benefits seem to be happening are reduction in itchy skin, itchy ear canals and gastrointestinal problems. Um, that's all associated, I think, with not being fed animal-sourced allergens such as beef, um, pork, and poultry uh, in the diet. And secondarily, being less overweight, obese, having better mobility, uh, having less musculoskeletal problems. So both of these are going to improve quality of life. And as I say, they seem to be having, on average, an extra uh, something like an extra decade of human uh, lifespan at the end of their lives so that was a study of dogs the difference was found to be statistically significant it was a large-scale study there were 1200 plus uh, dogs in that study uh, and it was conducted by uh, a research group at Guelph Vet School which is uh, one of the leading vet schools in Canada and that was published open access uh, last year and I also it makes me wonder about you know the animals in our food system many go into the food system with tumors and with uh, all sorts of maladies. So we're feeding our animals, our companion animals, animals who might have cancer, might have uh, various uh, diseases already. So that's a that's always a concern. And do you want to say something about that? Yes, there have been concerns about uh, ingredients that are not considered fit for human consumption. Uh, and have various other hazards uh, within them and there is a lot that can be said about that but it seems to be a lot less important than what we have found in these studies of health outcomes of uh, dogs and cats fed vegan diets because they're large-scale studies and they seem to be consistently finding uh, increased rates of specific problems for animals that are fed meat um, and they're the ones that I just described the itchy skin the ear canals the being more overweight and obese so I think that simply the hazards of animal sourced ingredients and having allergic reactions and, and intolerances to those um, and also for some reason animals suffering more from being uh, overweight and obese and having more mobility problems if fed meat those are, the, those are the problems that seem to be coming up commonly and being found across multiple studies uh, and are clearly having the biggest impact on the welfare of dogs and cats fed meat-based, meat-based diets. So I actually think those are the ones we should be focusing on. Mm-hmm. For sure. So how, do you have any tips for listeners who would be interested in transitioning from a traditional meat-based pet food to a vegan pet food or is it something you would recommend a slow transition uh, or how how do you recommend that yes um there's two points to be made here the first is that it's not okay to go home and knock together some fruit and vegetables and attempt to make your own vegan diet uh, <laughs> even if it's even if you're following a recipe and trying to supplement it because there have been quite a few studies showing that even when experts do this and follow recipes they're often nutritionally unsound so I would say um, try to purchase your company uh, sorry your, your product from a company that is a reputable pet food company it's hopefully working with experts such as veterinary nutritional specialists 
to fully supplement the diet and uh, produce it to a professional standard and hopefully ensure that it's nutritionally sound. Uh, the company should be able to provide some kind of information about steps taken to ensure nutritional soundness and it should say on the labelling of the product that it's nutritionally complete or complete and balanced and not intended only as a treat or a snack but is a complete diet. If it doesn't uh, provide that information and if the company can't provide any reassuring information about steps taken to ensure nutritional soundness then uh, you shouldn't trust it, you should be looking for uh, another product somewhere else. By the way, there's on my website, sustainablepetfood.info, I've got a list of suppliers who are supplying um, these pet foods and it's I don't uh, make any money f from that and I haven't had the time to keep it fully up to date, but it is a, a starting point and it does list a lot of uh, suppliers, including in the US. So that's one piece of advice. Try to make sure the diet is nutritionally sound. And the second piece of advice is with any dietary change, uh, it's good to do a gradual change, so ideally over a couple of weeks rather than just in a single day because it gives the um, digestive enzymes a chance to transition onto the new ingredients and the bacteria in the intestines a chance to change to the new food coming through. So this minimizes chance of adverse reactions such as diarrhea. So even if your dog, for example, is very enthusiastic, I would recommend a gradual change over time. If you have an animal that, through its personality, is very f fussy and resistant to changing from its preferred diet, there are various tricks and tips uh, on my website, sustainablepetfood.info, under the summary article about how to transition animals. And there are useful tips such as uh, only offering fresh food, uh, gently warming the food to increase the uh, smelliness of it because the sense of smell is really important for dogs and cats. Uh, additives such as a little bit of vegetable oil, spirulina, nori flakes, nutritional yeast. So these are all on my website, uh, which is sustainablepetfood.info under the uh, summary article. Um, even if you have a very fussy animal and you don't succeed in, in fully transitioning the animal um, or it takes a very long period of time, I wouldn't lose heart because some of the most stubborn animals have been successfully transitioned over six or more months. And even a partial, partial transition, if it's a significant uh, shift, is likely to bring substantial environmental benefits and possibly um, uh, health benefits and certainly better welfare for the food animals that are being consumed in these diets. Okay, that sounds great. And can you mention uh, some of the, the best vegan pet foods that are out there that you know about? I don't recommend any particular brands. I recommend that people um, follow those steps. So make sure that the uh, diet says on the labelling that it's nutritionally complete and make sure it's coming from a reputable company that can provide some kind of reassuring information about steps that they take to ensure nutritional soundness. And hopefully that's working with uh, expert uh, veterinary nutritional specialists or some other kind of uh, PhD nutritionist formulating their diets to meet nutritional guidelines of uh, authorities such as US authorities. Um, occasionally a company will provide an independent laboratory verification of nutritional content and that, that's gold standard but it costs more to do that than to produce a, a batch of pet food so it's uh, very unusual to see that but there needs to be some kind of uh, reasonable information about steps taken to ensure nutritional soundness. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the the issue that I've found is that uh, 
it's relatively easy to find vegan pet, uh, vegan dog food uh, through some of the online pet supply stores or even in per, you know in some of the independent pet stores, uh, which I won't uh, I won't go to a store that still sells animals. So uh, usually independent pet stores. Um, however, it is, I found it harder to find vegan cat food. So um, any ideas on where where people can find these foods uh, in wherever, in the U.S., in Australia, in the U.K.? Yep. Um, as I say on, on my website, sustainablepetfood.info, I've got a, a suppliers list uh, which lists uh, suppliers of, of these diets for dogs and cats uh, in all of those regions, uh, Aus- Australia, Europe, uh, and the U.S. and Canada. So that certainly um, might be helpful, uh, and um, that that list updates from time to time. But uh, I don't um, have any funding to to update that, so I, I don't get time to update it very often. But it is certainly a starting point anyway. Okay, uh, and I wanted to mention that I saw that you recently received the Distinguished Alumni Award from Murdoch University. Congratulations. Thank you very much. It was a thrill to uh, receive that and a fantastic excuse to go back to uh, Perth, Western Australia, which uh, is it's a bit like Los Angeles, but with better beaches uh, <laughs> at, the start of, at the start of summer and where I would be uh, swimming every day on the beach back there. It was uh, wonderful to go back. And this was a distinguished, uh, you were distingu- distinguished for your work in uh, in this area area of vegan pet food and as well as other issues such as animal experimentation? Yeah, it was for, for contributions to the field of animal welfare, broadly speaking, mm-hmm. uh, in, including my involvement at the university in helping establish humane teaching methods in the veterinary course uh, where harmful animal use had previously been very serious and widespread. So when I was a student, I um, helped establish those. And during my acceptance speech, I had the pleasure of uh, starting off by reading out uh, uh, an email. I said, this is an email I just received from the president of the student union when I was a student. Uh, and she said, do I understand correctly that you're receiving an award for the, the exact same thing the university ne- nearly threw you out for when you were a student uh, about, <laughs> about about 20 years ago? So so that was the case. I nearly did get thrown out of the veterinary course. Uh, and that and was for... Sorry to interrupt. That was for standing up for your beliefs and uh, yes. against invasive animal use. Oh, that is amazing. Absolutely. Uh, against harmful animal use within the veterinary curriculum when I was a student. Uh, so I had to take legal action against the university and expose the curi- curricular animal killing on primetime television and national newspapers in Australia. Um, and I narrowly survived, you know, being... Th- thrown out I narrowly avoided being thrown out of the the veterinary course Uh, so it's bizarre um, that I'm finally receiving an award for doing the same things for helping the university to transition towards the modern world and the use of humane teaching methods instead along with the other contributions uh, to the field of animal welfare but uh, particularly sweet because I had such great opposition uh, when I went through there as a student so I do uh, hope that uh, as many of my former opponents as possible 
uh, found out that I was <laughs> I was receiving an award because I can imagine <laughs> imagine some of them turning in their graves, as it were. <laughs> that is that's simply outstanding. That something you fought for, and like you said, they almost kicked you out. Now you're you know years later, you're getting an award uh, for for that exact issue in trying to protect animals and. Uh, and it's a great lesson for all of us is don't just take, you know, if someone is your professor or your, um, someone that may be a mentor in your life, if they're telling you that animal cruelty, animal suffering is normal, or that is the way the it's always been, uh, don't take no for an answer. Keep fighting to protect the animals because regardless of the fact that if that's the way it's always been, it's time to change a lot of the, the things that have uh, harmed animals for centuries. <laughs> yes, we're on the right side of history. We may face a lot of opposition at the time, but in the long term, um, uh, quite often society does come around to the points that we were making in the first place. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh so we're getting lower on time. Just a couple quick questions. Is there anything listeners can do to help promote vegan diets for our pets? Uh, definitely. So whenever I publish uh, my studies and publish uh, key studies looking at health outcomes of dogs and cats on vegan diets and even more importantly of the environmental sustainability benefits, um, these can be found, by the way, uh, either in places like sustainablepetfood.info or else my personal website, which is andrewknight.info under articles. And they also have short summary videos, which are on social media, um, less than five minutes, summarizing key points. So if people are able to find me on YouTube, I've got a YouTube channel. Uh, so YouTube um, at Andrew Knight. Uh, or just go to my website, andrewknight.info, uh, and click on videos. Uh, there's lots of short summary videos of uh, these various key publications uh, and also recordings and presentations on this and other issues. If people were able to share those through their networks, that would be something uh, that hopefully a lot of people might find interesting but would also raise awareness and do some good. So thank you for that. Oh, definitely. And I will definitely uh, be promoting... Uh, your website and urging people to look into this. Uh, and, and I will as well. Um, I would love to transition my cats fully to a vegan diet. So uh, I really appreciate all of your your insight and, and of course, your work. Uh, it's great to be back in touch with you. And uh, I, I'd honestly love to have you on again sometime where we can maybe delve back into invasive animal experimentation, which is how you and I uh, first met, so we can maybe talk about the state of of that horrific issue. <laughs> Fantastic and very good to reconnect. Uh, thanks for having me on the show and everyone out there. Have a great day or a great evening wherever you are. Yeah, uh, thank you again, Andrew, and uh, I'll be back in touch soon. Take care. Okay, so that was wonderful having Andrew on and uh, very informative about. Uh, these vegan diets for our pets, please definitely check out his website and look into this. 
So I want to uh, give a little uh, update about some of my current campaigns. Uh, the next Lincolnwood board meeting is next Tuesday, December 19th at 730 uh, at Lincolnwood Village Hall. And uh, we are always looking for and needing more advocates to speak up for Spur and the rabbits and all the wild animals that are suffering and languishing in cages at the animal store in Lincolnwood. Uh, if you are interested in helping, please reach out to me, uh, Chicago Alliance for Animals at gmail.com or through our website, Chicago Alliance for Animals.org. And uh, really, it's it would be less than usually less than an hour of your time. Uh, but and we definitely need Lincolnwood residents too, but anybody can uh, submit public comment and help us get Spur, this African tortoise who was trafficked from Africa back in, well, I'm not sure the exact date, but she's been stuck in this approximate four by six display case for more than 30 years. This is an animal that probably weighs between 150 and 200 pounds. Uh, her display case is just bigger than twice the size of her body. Uh, Sulcatas are known to be roamers uh, who roam all day long and forage, and she is stuck in this prison where she uh, has nothing except hay. That's it. She has no enrichment. She has no uh, companionship. She has no sunshine, fresh air, nothing that is natural. So we are going to keep fighting until we get Spur to Sanctuary in Arizona, which would be a much more natural habitat for her. And, uh, of course, we're fighting to ban the sale of rabbits, too, because uh, the Lincolnwood trustees and mayor have opted out of this humane and common sense law that passed in Cook County uh, back in 2016. So for more than seven years, they have literally ignored Cook County law. And by doing so, they are putting uh, so much pressure on local animal rescues and animal shelters who have to pick up the slack for all the unneutered rabbits and bunnies that the animal store sells uh, that reproduce and then get dumped uh, in forest preserves and parking lots and so on. So uh, we definitely need your help. We're going to win this campaign, but we're, we'll win it much faster with help. So please reach out to me if you can help us with that. Uh, I also want to talk about Chicago's uh, ordinance that was introduced in July to ban the sale of new fur in Chicago. Uh, this would not ban any, you know, current fur coats or anything such as that, but it would ban the sale of new fur, which would put a dent uh, in the fur industry, which is uh, nothing but immense cruelty. Uh, the way animals are farmed for fur. They are in uh, metal cages in the middle of uh, the coldest conditions or the hottest conditions with no, um, no enrichment, no protection from the elements. Uh, if they are uh, trapped, then oftentimes uh, they are in steel jaw leg hold traps where they will literally chew off their own leg or limb to get free. Um, and if they are unsuccessful, they will have their head bashed in uh, when the trapper comes to get them. So it's not fun, people, but it's the facts. These are the facts. So we need um, your help. If you're a Chicagoan, please look up your 
older person's uh, name or and phone number, give them a quick call or send an email. I have a draft email that I'd be happy to uh, send to you via email uh, that you can simply forward on to your older person, urging them. It has all the key points on why we want this uh, ban to succeed and why we want them to co-sponsor the bill. Uh, if you are not a Chicago land or Chicago resident, uh, you can contact Mayor Johnson, uh, Chicago's mayor, and urge him to support this humane and common sense measure. Another reason we want to see this banned is because there's a real link between um, fur farms and mink farms and coronaviruses. And the, the fact that these viruses can literally jump from these trapped animals to humans. So it's not just an animal welfare issue. It's a uh, public public safety issue as well and public health issue. So uh, again, reach out to me, Chicago Alliance for Animals at gmail.com. I'm happy to guide you on how to find your older person, how to reach out to them, send you a draft email if you like. Um, I also uh, read a very uh, exciting article that came out about a week ago, I believe, uh, that Pittsburgh is uh, looking to ban horse carriages. They have a similar fur ban as Chicago, as well as ban, uh, a, a bill to ban foie gras, which uh, if you're not familiar with foie gras, it is basically um, means fatty liver. Uh, it's duck liver, and these ducks are force-fed. They have uh, metal tubes shoved down their throats, uh, which cause immense damage and pain. And then they are force-fed large amounts of grain to fatten their liver, liver quickly. Um, basically, their livers are diseased. So this, this product, which is considered a delicacy, is basically a diseased, diseased liver, diseased product. Um, so in the, the way they create uh, this product is, is pure torture. So uh, if you are a Pittsburgh resident, uh, we need you to reach out to your city council member and to your mayor. And if again, if you're not a, a Pittsburgh resident, you can still help with this campaign by contact, contacting Pittsburgh's mayor um, and urge him to support the bills to ban horse carriages, the sale of new fur, and the sale of foie gras. Uh, again, all that information can be found uh, by reaching out to me or going to uh, Chicago or Chicago Alliance for Animals Facebook page. I did an action on that just a, a day or two ago. So, and I provide all of the contact information for Pittsburgh's mayor and Pittsburgh City Council. Uh, Dallas is moving along with their horse carriage uh, ban, and they're they're pleased to. Dallas's officials to finally end this inhumane excuse for tourism and entertainment. Uh, my volunteer Gloria is just doing an amazing job putting out actions and uh, testifying before city council. I've testified uh, now uh, and I will be doing so again in January. Uh, they actually, one of their uh, committees, city council committees, uh, quality of life recently discussed the issue. So just the fact that they are vi uh, looking at the issue is is a step forward. So again, we need Dallas residents to reach out to their city council member. We need 
everybody to reach out to Dallas's mayor and urge them to support this humane measure before a horse or a human is seriously injured or killed on their streets. And then, of course, we have Boston and New York City and my volunteer, Tracy, who is doing a wonderful job there, uh, urging uh, people to reach out to New York City and Boston's officials uh, to end the trade there. So, again, we need Boston and New York City residents to do their part. Take one minute to make a quick phone call to your city council members and to your mayor. And uh, anybody can help with these campaigns. So don't think that just because you don't live in any of these cities I just mentioned that you can't help. Tourism speaks and tourism is powerful. So you can always let these officials know that you would love to come visit Boston. You'd love to come visit Dallas. Um, you're not going to spend any of your tourism dollars in Pittsburgh until they ban horse carriages or ban the sale of fur. Uh, anybody can help with these campaigns and we do need your help. So uh, thank you for listening today. Uh, This is Jody Whitaker of the Chicago Alliance for Animals. Uh, Please visit us at at our website, chicagoallianceforanimals.org. Look us up on Facebook and reach out to us to help with these campaigns to free Spur, free Rocky, the Lonely Coyote, and ban horse carriages worldwide. So thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll tune in again next Saturday.